Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Vass here. Welcome to the show. One of the most loved actresses at work today, Minnie Driver, has had an extraordinary life both on and off the screen. She tells her story in a fabulous new memoir, Managing Expectations, and we hosted her live on stage in conversation with author and editor Erica Wagner to find out more. Enjoy. You start the book... With a kind of a tough story, you are being carried back to boarding school yeah. against your will, yeah. so it seems. The reader gets kind of one impression at the beginning yeah. of this story. What makes you... It's a very arresting way to start. Well, I did. My mother used to tell the story of me um, screaming that I was being abducted and um, throwing my clothes out the window which seems counterintuitive to then wanting to run away because it's much harder to run away naked than it is to run away clothed, as I found out. It's funny how your, your drama becomes your comedy and your humour when you look back. But it was very, very painful at the time. Like I did not want to go to boarding school. I did not want to be away from my mother, or my father for that matter, sleeping in a room of noisy, snuffling strangers. Um, I really wanted to be at home. But uh, there were, again, I think what's interesting is like you sort of, to begin with your tragedy, your little nine-year-old tragedy, and then as you open the aperture, you start realising and framing and giving context to the relationship that my mother was having with the man that she had to marry in order to maintain 50-50 custody of me and my sister so you you start to get the context as the story goes on but yeah it begins in a very dramatic way because I I was a very dramatic little girl (laughs) give us without giving too much away from the book of course give us a little more perhaps of that context because your mother who does is it's so moving in this book she comes across as the most extraordinary person, and we'll say a little more about that um, later, but she was trying to accomplish, as you indicated, something very specific. She was trying to kind of take care of you and your siblings. Yeah, she definitely was. I mean, it was, you know, it was complicated. It was complicated by the fact that in, you know, 1976 was the first year that a woman could sign for a mortgage without a male co-sign. It was so oppressive and when you know my parents weren't married and when they broke up my sister and I were made wards of court and the judge this I always just imagined him as just a sort of periwigged patriarchal bugger who said who gave her impossible you know an, an impossible set of tasks to accomplish in order to hang on to her kids which was she had to be married have us in school and own her own home and he gave her seven weeks to do that so you know she she did it and I think it was complicated and perhaps not thought out all the way and there was you know an enormous amount of grown-up pain around all of that that I didn't understand and certainly my sister and I were suddenly living a very very different life to the one that we had been living before and I rejected it completely um I rejected the 
the mildewy cottage that we moved to, the falling down, damp, one shared bathroom. And I really rejected my stepfather, like, with great articulation. <laughs> you know, which I think was probably quite, was probably quite hard for him. But, you know, not that hard. I mean. <laughs> but I think one of the wonderful things you do in the book is, and we were discussing this a little bit in the green room, is you feel very much in the present moment with the nine-year-old you or the 11-year-old you as we go on, the reader has a sense that there is grown-up pain around that the grown-up reader can guess at, but we feel very strongly that Minnie's passion. And that's one of the things that's so powerful about the book. Thank you. It's interesting because I suppose I thought when I started reading the book, well, she's there, she's going to go to this awful boarding school that she's going to hate and be miserable and run away from. But that actually was not in the end the case. No, it's a wonderful school. Like, you know, it's, you know, I return to the, not just the idea, but to the ethos and the reality of that school over and over again, like in my life. I, I reference it, I reference my teachers. My son now goes there, which was all of his choice um it's it's really interesting like it's been a huge figure in my life my school um even though it was the separation from my mum was was really difficult but I mean I'm interested in like how you amplify that voice like it's such a pure voice when you're a child the undiluted version of who you are and so many things are forming that adults are constantly trying to to reclaim that beginner's mind that a child has Constantly, we try and do that, I think. I really wanted to hear her voice and because I always thought she was so funny and so misunderstood. <laughs> and then I found myself in this wonderful school that could accommodate the, um, I suppose, the big emotions that I had and they helped me, you know, it really helped me channel them creatively. Tell us a little bit about Alistair. Well, Alistair... teachers. Alistair's one of the most amazing people, you know, on the planet. Uh, he, he really was sort of... It, I mean, I say in the book that he's a mixture of, like, Dickens and Chaucer, like a character out of Dickens and Chaucer, because he really is, but he was the kindest... Um, he paid attention to who the children were as individuals. He, he actually wrote a really famous report that my mother framed, and um, I now have it. Um, in my house and he just said I've, this was when I was 12 he said I very much enjoyed teaching Minnie this term she is a very difficult person sometimes um, I assume all her husbands will love her dearly <laughs> it was the best report ever I remember, I remember my mother reading it out all her husbands will love her dearly you don't have to get married, Minnie. Like, you know, <laughs> I was like, that's the headline? Okay. He is, he was a wonderful teacher. He taught me how to be an actor through teaching me how to write from a very early age, from really from seven. Crafting, I was, I was telling you earlier, he would make us do these things on a Monday morning. He would post on a, the notice board these things called observations and it would be making a cup of tea, drinking a glass of water, throwing a tennis ball and you'd have to write two sides of A4 paper about that to really explore language and texture and try and figure out how to write and he from that from this apparently sort of banal exercise he would write the most incredible notes on your essays he paid attention to the the detail that that I'd found he would divine things about your character from what you'd written and he taught me all the way through like all the way from when I was tiny all the way till when I was grown and I think he saw the whole of me and he judged the whole of me you know he he was never pious enough to think that like teachers didn't judge children he was like you know judge you all the time you're dreadful you're nicer than Tom Tom's Tom's really good at sports but he can be awful you know, there was, there was something holistic about the way he taught everybody. And um, 
I really love him. Yeah, he helped me so much. He was so kind to me when I was incredibly sad. And he, he really helped me find my voice in all these different ways. And also as an actor. Because oh, yeah, totally. you're acting. Tell us a little bit about the beginning of your this really important political play that well, you took part in. Well, you know, the A3 is a busy road. <laughs> and the A3 was even busier, you know, in the 70s. And there were lots of people who lived around Petersfield and Hazelmere and where we lived who were super grumpy about how long it took them to get to London. And so they proposed, the Conservative Council proposed that they build this bypass. And the bypass was going to destroy not only acres of, you know, the environment, but also was going to go straight through the bottom of our school, cut down this 500-year-old oak tree and, and carve up a lot of the school's property. So in the best traditions of this super strange progressive school that I went to, and that my mother also went to, by the way, and everyone in my family except my dad, they, they said, well, the best thing that we can do is write a protest musical. So <laughs> that's what that's People what don't happened. say that often enough, I think. <laughs> so these teachers, they wrote... It was the most brilliant musical. It was called Bypass the Parcel... And we had this special assembly to explain how clever that title was. And they wrote, it was sort of, it was like Rashomon, it was sort of Kurosawa in a, in a protest musical, because it was from all these different points of view. Like it was the statisticians who were pumping out all of their ideas about why roads were cool and great in the future. And then it was all the grumpy people trying to get to Hailing Island on the bank holiday weekend with their kids screaming. And then it was like the road itself, who, and the road was, the road, the road was, we danced the road. We were in like black balaclavas <laughs> with like yellow lines down the front. And we did this super, like there were no words. The road like danced its like viral load across the stage. It was completely brilliant. And there was one, and brilliant lyrics and what really wonderful music. And there was one solo in the whole thing and you had to audition for the solo, which was to save the 500-year-old oak tree. Now, that tree and I were already deeply connected because it was the place when I ran away naked and sad, I would climb this tree and I would hide in this tree. But nonetheless, everyone had to audition. And that was my first audition, was auditioning to sing to save this tree. And as I say in the book, you know, I really loved and wanted to save the tree, but I more wanted to sing the song in front of lots of people. <laughs> so, you know, I've like struggled, I've struggled with, with advocacy and attention grabbing. <laughs> Maybe always. <laughs> and you have the most wonderful conversation with your friend Greta. Yeah. Greta's not her real name. I changed it to protect her identity. She knows who she is. No, I'm joking. She probably does. But yeah, Greta and I had About this, uh, empiricism and subjectivity. Yeah, we wrestled with empiricism and subjectivity. I didn't understand why someone could be the best. Like, the, this idea that there was one person who was destined or could only sing this song... And I asked her, I was like, why does there have to be one person? She was like, I don't know. And I was like, well, but, you, but, but we're, not, you know, we're not supposed to judge each other. And she was like, well, you know, somebody's got to judge us. And we, we both auditioned for the part, and then I got the part, and it was really the end of our friendship, um, which was devastating, and a first foray into how lonely it is at the top, you know, of a, of a tree. <laughs> I didn't plan that. That was quite good. That was good. That was good. <laughs> that was very good. That was very good. But do you think that, you know, it's an early lesson. You, you do go on in the book to tell stories about the not exactly, it isn't random the way you're chosen, but it is subjective. It is subjective, and I think it's about internalising that subjectivity, which as a young woman, and certainly any young woman who wants to be an actor, in my opinion, has some version of a schism within them because you just have to have these breaks in order to 
have conflict to make you an interesting actor, but, I mean, in my opinion. But you, you know, you can get a bit, you can get a bit lost. You come across as someone of fierce independence from a very early age, someone who's really trying to feel the boundaries of their own identity. One of the places, or one of the backdrops against which this happens, um, is the Hotel Fontainebleau yeah. in Miami. Yeah. This is an extraordinary story, and I think particularly extraordinary to read now, when those of us raising children are doing so in the age of mobile phones and knowing where everyone is all the time. Can you say a little something about what, what happened and what this experience has, has meant for you? It really resonates in the book. Well, it was a great adventure, which gives it some context. It would not happen today. You would be arrested. It wouldn't, <laughs> it wouldn't happen. But it was very different. It was very different then. But I was staying with my dad in this house that he'd built in Barbados where he loved to be. And I got into a fight with the woman who would become his wife, but at the time was the, the first really significant relationship that my dad had been in since my mum. And full of conflict and full of rage, didn't, you know, and I was 11 and didn't know how to properly present that. And I think was very unkind to my stepmother. But nonetheless, I was 11. And there was a fight which I don't recount it in the book because I remembered the fight with my father rather than what precipitated the fight. But my stepmother reminded me that it was because I'd nicked her scarf. So, and also, as she said, which made me a liar and a thief. Um, but um, I don't remember which, we, that. which we've agreed is going to be the title of your next, yes, book, next book, I think, yes. The, the Liar and the Thief, or I Am a Liar and a Thief. Anyway, my dad was very, very angry about the whole thing, and I wouldn't apologise for what I'd done, and he said, well, you're getting on the next plane back to England. And he quite literally meant that, but there was no flight that night, and he was so angry, he put me on the first plane back to England, but it went via Miami for a day and a night. And I went by myself, and I went and I stayed in the, the Fountain Blue, which is how they say it in the... Fountain Blue. Fountain Blue. Uh, which was probably the biggest den of iniquity and cocaine, like, in Miami Beach in 1981, which very prophetically, my dad's assistant, when he was trying to sell me on why this was a good... It was, I was going to have such a great time. Um, he was like, it's so great, they've got a... There's a staircase they have in the foyer of the fountain blue, and uh, um, it's it's the staircase, and it just it just it goes nowhere. And I was like, "Why does it go nowhere?" He was like, "I don't know. It's just called the staircase to nowhere." And that was <laughs> so perfectly summed up the whole experience, because there is indeed this staircase to nowhere in the foyer of the fountain blue hotel. And um, I went there and I had a really strange odyssey with a, a Cuban dissident who sort of took me in. I mean, I think he just acknowledged a fellow exile and was like, this is so weird that this kid is like wandering around. I had this, I bought these sunglasses that had like a, a beak to protect you from getting sunburned. So I just had the robe. I was like, if I wear the robe that has the insignia of the hotel, I'm going to look like I belong. And no one, but it obviously was like dragging on the floor behind me. Then I had a fountain with a baseball cap and the glasses with the beak. So I couldn't see very much. And I was wandering around trying to find shade. They don't have shade at the pool at this hotel because they want you to pay for a cabana. And like there were, there were no cabanas free. And this Cuban, this Cuban guy just said, you know, you can come and sit with me and my family. And then we had a conversation, an interesting conversation about um, learning to be really cognizant of the hills upon which you're willing to die in your life and whether it's really worth it, you know. It was, it was really, it was amazing. He was amazing. It taught me a lot, and it was a very independent kind of adventure, even though it's sort of like called Child Protective Services now. Yes. Then it was... Crossed with kind of Eloise. 
Yeah, it was like you know, Eloise, in, the Eloise in 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 yeah. the. Uh, in Miami. But you strike a really interesting balance, I think, in the telling of it between it being a sort of funny, extraordinary story, but also a sad story, and also a story about being lucky. He was a nice man who was yeah. looking after you, but yeah. he could not have been, as you say, he could have been one of yeah. the bad people. Yeah, I mean, I actually think he probably was one of the bad people. Like, I really <laughs> definitively, I think he might have just. But been, not to you. But not to me. To me, he was. To me, he was lovely and 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 talked to me like a grown up, which I really appreciated, even though I didn't, I didn't understand everything that he said, but I understood enough. When you tell these stories and think about these stories, you yourself have a teenage son who you say now is at the school that you went to, and you tell these stories of your childhood that are about testing the boundaries of freedom and testing the boundaries of people's tempers and patience. Mm -hmm. I know this is a tough question, but I I wonder how these tales, have they explicitly affected your parenting style, as we say these days? I think so. I mean, I think it can always go one of two ways, can't it? You either repeat the history or you forge a new one. And maybe that's, always, that's true every day that you wake up. You can, you can live in your past or you can be in your day. But I definitely had absolutely no intention of sending Henry to boarding school. Like, I would still be carrying him around in a baby Bjorn if I had my way. Like, I'd, I'm like his worst groupie. Like, what you doing? Oh, can I play? No? What are you reading? Should we have food? Like, it, I'm probably the opposite. It, but it was just him and me as well, you know. Uh, for pretty much all of his life, it was just me and him. And I was, very, I was very interested in being around him. And I changed my life quite significantly to stop making films and do a television show and buy a house that was right near the studio and make sure that the hours meant that I could see my kid. So, yeah, I did. I made, I made some different choices. And, but what's ironic and hilarious is that despite all of my I'm going to be this hands-on parent, I've still got a kid who, who goes to boarding school and, but who is having this amazing... He's having an amazing, happy time and it was, all his, it was all his idea. Well, I suppose I think that if kids feel safe, they also feel able to go away because they know they can yeah. come back. That's what I like to think. I think anyway. so. I think it's like, what's that great? There's a great... I won't remember it, but it's in The Flea by John Donne, and it's about being a compass with the other person. Oh, yes. And the foot that reaches out, but, could be, but it always returns. That's how I think about Han, or on an elastic band, something. I want to ask you about swimming. Oh, yeah. Um, and I, I want to read, what I think, an absolutely fabulous thing that you wrote about swimming that I really loved. People and, and many rights... People don't think you're trying to get away from them when you go for a swim. They think you're healthy, strong, secure in how your body looks stripped down. If the weather is cold or raining, they think you're brave. They do not know that water is my escape hatch, the perfect distraction from my anxiety in the shape of a cool gesture. I think that's just brilliant, I have to say. Thank you. Um, But I was very interested to learn how much swimming has meant to you. Can you say a little more about that? Well, my mother taught me to swim in West Wittering when I was about two or three. West Wittering is on the Sussex coast and it's, it's not warm and it's <laughs> everything there is grey, is, is, is on the grey scale, the, all brown, the sand, the sea. It's so not nice, but my mother made it such a gleeful experience and I was sort of taking my cues from how much she seemed to be loving it. And I think it must have gone in really early that swimming is just the best thing, no matter the, um, no matter the environment. A body of water is worth jumping into, and you're only going to feel better when you get out. And it's just been true my whole life. It, I mean, it really has. I've, and I use swimming. I definitely use it as an escape. I definitely use it as therapy, um, I really, I think it's just knowing when I get in and I swim, I will feel differently about whatever, whatever I took in with me. 
So it's, yeah, that's what it's always been, but it definitely stemmed from my mother. You graduated from Weber Douglas Drama School, and as you write, you were then the only person in your small class of 16 people not to get representation. You, but you then did in a kind of extraordinary way. Um, how did you navigate that period? Because I'm guessing one goes to drama school really to achieve that one thing, to then go on in the world as an actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're really stuffed, I think, if you, when you leave school. I mean, that was, the, that was the opinion of my teachers who were like, all right, you know, we did all we could. And you wrote all the letters, and they came and saw the plays, and then they didn't choose you. <laughs> so it was, it was, you know, and again, that, that whole period sort of taught me about luck and industry, and that you have to keep working. I was singing in, in a variety of restaurants and clubs where people were not there to listen to the music just to make money and it was kind of the beginning of um it was the beginning of rave culture really so house music sort of exploded out of chicago and into these fields in oxfordshire it seemed (laughs) and um i i just realized i was going to have this job i wasn't going to be an actor i was going to sing i was going to just make enough money to to do what I had to do, and I didn't have a plan. So I'd go to these raves, but I'm not a particular um, drug taker, and I don't really drink um, to excess, so I would always be driving the car, but I'd still stay there and dance for eight hours with everybody else. And it was my way of dealing with the flat-out rejection of my dream before it had even got started. And there was just another girl who I who also didn't drink or do drugs. And we used to, we used to all, we'd sit on the, on the bonnet of my car at around 6 a.m. with like a thermos of flask, a thermos flask of tea with blankets and sort of nice clean clothes, watching all these people like absolutely off their trolleys <laughs> running around the fields trying to find, I don't know what. And then she and I would have these great conversations on the drive back to London. And anyway, it turned out that she was the assistant to a casting director. And at the end of the summer when she said, you know, what are you going to do? It's September in a minute. I was like, I don't know. And she invited me to come and meet her boss. And I honestly don't know why her boss had nothing to recommend me except sort of vague sobriety and like really bad hair. <laughs> and by, she, she, you know, she picked up the phone and she called an agent who I could hear down the phone saying, yeah, no, we already saw her, she's awful. And she was like, no, 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 I think you should meet her. I think she'll be, I think it'll be good. And, you know, the agent listened to her and then signed me up on probation. So it was good. It was, it was lucky. But that was, that essay is called Other People's Drugs. Because it really, my whole career is really thanks to other people's drugs, I think. <laughs> but as you, as you said, it kind of, you know, it shows the balance between, you know, there's industry and determination. There's also luck. There's a huge amount of luck. A huge amount of luck. And the right moment. And you talk about being an actor and that you, you say something that it, like, it's not just about winning the lottery. It's about winning the lottery and then having to win it again and again and again. And that must be challenging <laughs> to, to know that you want to express yourself, to be an artist, but some form of permission is required yeah, and I mean, that's the, you know, I've lived at the nexus of that, like, my whole adult life, of how, how annoying it is that you have to be chosen by other people to do the thing that you love, and that particularly as a woman, there is even less agency than there is as a man, Well, there was. It's slightly better now, but not much. Well, and I was going to ask, because you do, you tell a, a startling story, write a startling story about a chocolate commercial. Yeah, I really wanted that. I really wanted to get that commercial. I mean, getting a, getting a national commercial, like, that was money. But it's, it was, it's quite a sort of disgusting process that you... Yeah, well, that one was disgusting. ...describe. Um, yeah. And about auditioning in front of a group of men, really suits who are their kind of 
to be entertained by a particular kind of performance. Do you think, have things got better? Have they not changed? Are we moving forward? Obviously, you can't comment on the whole state of an industry, but it's, it's a pretty striking tale. I think it's moving... F- I think... Well, to, to, to give context, there was this chocolate bar and the whole ad agency, when we, I went into the audition, there were about 17 or 20 men in suits with their jackets off. And there were no, there were no women. And then there was a stool and there was this receptacle that had bits of chocolate in it. And the director was like, right, we want you to... We want you to it's like the scene from When Harry Met Sally. You eat the chocolate and you have an orgasm. And then you're going to do it the second time, you're going to do it bigger, because that's for the Dutch market. And I was like, really? Do the, do the, do the Dutch really need it? Oh, all right. So, we, so I knew it was wrong. Like I, knew, I, knew it was, I knew it was really pervy and it was wrong. And, but because it was this idea that was sanctioned and substantiated by a room full of dudes and... I was just trying to get a job and like I wanted the money like I could smell the money even like beyond like the hideous chocolate and so I did it you know I did it and it was so grotesque like the whole thing was grotesque the chocolate was grotesque the kind of the chocolate brown teeth the pretending to be you know Meg Ryan having an orgasm in front of all these dudes it was just it was horrible and so when they told me to do it again I said I said that I wouldn't you know, and then, and that got the response, Ooh, everybody else would do it, you know, what's so special about you? Anyway, I, I left, and then they called my agent and said that I was difficult, and that that was then this moniker, which is then hung up on a woman like a scarlet letter or, a, or something. Um, and it was really, it's really, it's really interesting navigating what is shame and what is actually thinking that you did something wrong and what is your instinct that it was absolutely correct to not do that and yet you realise that that, there'll be punishment for that. So I battered that around pretty much my whole career of when when you speak up, there may well be punitive measures if you speak up in a way that is strong. Um, That word outspoken is used and I've never really understood what that means because I don't understand what is inspoken. Like, what is its obverse? What is outspoken? It's this pejorative that's attached pretty much uniquely to women. I was going to say, it's only women it's who not, are out. It's never men. Men. men have opinions. Men have opinions. Or that's, to which they're or that's entitled. How that's how it's presented. But then you have to be very careful talking about that stuff because then you start sounding shrill or emotional. God forbid. But I do take issue with that word. I think it's rubbish, outspoken. It's bollocks. It doesn't mean anything. It means somebody who is saying something, who is just saying something. And I've learned that if you, even if you present your argument politely in film a lot of the time, um, if it slows things down or it makes people have to change their course, you, you can be saddled with a, you know... I mean, I've had my fair share of, like, actually being difficult. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. I just, I really know the difference. But there is no nuance. The way that you're passed, P-A-R-S-E-D, as a woman in Hollywood, is there is no nuance with that. But you yourself, if you're lucky, get to see, oh, yeah, I'm being an ass. Stop doing that. Be... um, You can can see where the boundary is for yourself. Definitely, and particularly now. And now I see it. I mean, I just... I've made a couple of films that are coming out this year with young actors and it's interesting watching young women like watching how they behave on set and just seeing the same old the same old things that are problematic and there are slightly more mechanisms in in place for them to um for them to be treated i think with more respect but um there's still the same eye roll when these young women would ask for certain things that I think were completely within the realms of dignity and decency to ask for. But now I just sit like a very old crone going, oh, yeah, look at that. Uh, if you do want my opinion, I won't. I'll show. I was very struck in this book, um, perhaps because I do not feel I have this quality myself, by your physical 
courage. And there's another extraordinary story, is of, and I think it's the, it's the 2018, the, the fire that nearly destroyed your home. Yeah. Um, and the sea incursion. Yeah, our sea-based incursion. <laughs> you, you made, yes, the sea-based incursion. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Well, they, I'm in awe. I mean, the, you know, the California wildfires, are, like everybody knew about those, and they are ongoing. But um, my little corner of Malibu, where I live, I live in this very small community, and every was mandatory evacuation because the fire really was coming and burning absolutely everything in its path. I think 1,800 homes were lost. They, these guys that I live in, my, my neighbours... Ten of them refused to evacuate, and they basically stayed and fought the fire for 36 hours. With There was a retired fireman who, when you retire from the fire department in California, you get given a hose. And so he had his, like, commemorative hose and one other that someone else had. And these guys just fought the fire. The, the, the 15-year-old kid who wouldn't leave his dad went around with a, uh, a hose wetting down all of our houses that are on the perimeter of this gully, which is where the fire was coming, and that's my house is right there. This kid went around and he wet down all of our decks and our roofs so that any cinders that blew across would be less likely to catch. And they were properly heroic. And at the end of all of this, they were rather stranded with this one FEMA meal a day, and they were, they were running out of gasoline for their generators. There was no water, there was no power, there was no booze, there was no chocolate, there was no eyewash, there were no masks, gloves... And I felt compelled to go and deliver stuff, but you couldn't get in because people had been looting. They'd been dressing up as police officers and as firemen. And so the Coast Guard had issued this no ship to shore, so you couldn't even get in on a skiff. But I was, I was at a moment in my life where I was a bit mad. I'd just been through a really, really bad breakup with someone that I thought I was going to be with forever. So I might not have been thinking completely sanely but it was with absolute clarity and um i did find someone who was willing to risk arrest to drive the boat who wasn't he was from malibu and then i thought i had to find somebody to help me deliver all these things and um i rang everybody up and um and no one wanted to go <laughs> i i wouldn't have wanted to go i'm i'm afraid but you did Find I did, I someone. found someone, yeah, I found someone that I didn't really know that I'd met at a party who was sort of like a modern-day Indiana Jones, made documentaries in sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East and difficult places to move around, so I thought he'd be a good candidate. And he was, he was great. He helped me. And we had a very interesting day together um, and narrowly, narrowly evaded the Coast Guard. But I, you know, what I loved about this book is those stories that are so much about being in the moment, you know, that actually kind of takes me back to what you were saying about your teacher, Alistair, about really just observing and living things as you do them. And that leads me, I'd I'd love you to say a little something about your mother, Gaynor, who you end the book with, you write about her so movingly, um, and I lost my own mother a while ago, um, and it's a, it's a beautiful tribute that you pay to her, um, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about her. Well, you know, she, Mum died in the, uh, like halfway through writing the book, which was, you know, was terrible, just terrible, and I didn't really know how I was going to finish it, because... What I realized very quickly about grief is that you're, it's like you're held in amber. It just, you're literally held in this place and you, you can't get away from it. And it's a strange groundhog experience. And mum had featured, you know, I'd written about her through the book because she was just this extraordinarily funny, beautiful, brilliant person and difficult and awful as well, you know, the first person to say that that she was those things. So I was like, how can I finish, how can I finish this book that she is in? And all I could write about was her dying. And I would be sit there writing through the night about her dying and realizing that it was just 
God forbid anyone ever saw any of the stuff that I was writing. It was just so tragic and awful and not fit for consumption, but I carried on writing. And the weird thing is that grief or these stages of grief, you... I wrote through it until I literally kind of banged my head on, like in the Truman Show, you know, when he gets to the edge of the, of the, of the fake of the world and finds he's looking for the door, or in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy when you reach the end of the universe. I kind of banged my head up against the end of it and was like, oh, I've, 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 I've written everything I can possibly write about this. And then I didn't really know what to do. And she very much informed who, like, how she bellied up to very difficult things, which was, you just begin, you just do it. So you stop writing about that. And my boyfriend was brilliant. He said, just write, write something happy, write a story that you love, write a story that she would have loved. So I wrote the story of, of the sea-based incursion. I wrote that. And then I could go back, and it felt very, very important to this process of grief to at least try and, and incorporate her dying into the book because it was, it was so awful, but it was so beautiful and far more akin to, to birth than any of us give, give death credit for. And it was a privilege to be with her. And we're so lucky that we were. You know, I've lived my whole life, pretty much, 26 years. I've lived in California, and COVID meant that we were here in England. And right there, and my sister and I, my brother and her sisters, we could be with her. And I think I wanted it to, you know, she was very funny. She was very funny even as she was dying. And uh, I thought that was, worth, that was worth writing about. And I think it was a fitting tribute she probably would have found there's a photograph of her at the end of the book. She would have been like, God, that's a bit bloody dramatic, isn't it? <laughs> but um, it, but it's, it's great. I love that there is a picture of her at the end of the book. She is, um, she's the best sort of full stop, and she was the best beginning. But it's a privilege, too, that you share that with us. It's a, it's a wonderful and intimate thing to, to share with your readers who... It is an honor, I think, to be allowed into someone's world in that way and, and really get to feel who, who that person was. And something you I wrote down, um, what you alluded to with your mother saying, it's all a decision. You just decide and then you do something. You don't have to know everything, but you have to begin. And that's a great piece of advice for those many moments when we think, what on earth am I going to do? There, there must grief. be a good choice here, but I can't see what it is. And just do, do something. Yeah, do and something. I mean, her, her advice to me, like in my life, has echoed through this, this process of grief, which, you know, it doesn't end. Like, I completely understand now why people wear black for a year. Like, I completely mm. understand it. It's not that the black is a reflection of your inner state, it is to let people know, I am in this netherworld, I am in this place, and you should know that anything I say or that I do is, let this, let this black clothing give that context. Because life goes on, you know, life goes on around you, and it's the, it's the beautiful thing, and it's the hardest thing when you're grieving. So I think her advice, her advice in living is what's helped me with her dying which is just, just begin each day. Just, just begin. That day. That's wonderful. Well, we're going to begin now with some questions from our audience, oh, if God. that's all right. Oh, uh, yeah, maybe fine. we'll change the, the lighting a, a tiny bit. I don't know if that's possible, so we can see. Um, but so raise your hands, and we have a couple of microphones, and people with microphones will come to you. Hi, hi there. Hello. Uh, you mentioned swimming as being an escape. Uh, was it an escape from oh, uh, you God. anxieties? What are your anxieties? <laughs> so nice, easy, nice, easy. Start. That's great. You know, um, I would say that they're common or garden because I just don't, I've never come across a single person who doesn't have anxiety around something. But, you know, certainly when I, 
moved 7,000 miles away from everyone that I knew well and loved, the existential anxiety of being this completely different person, which is what I thought I was on a completely different continent. And that was amazing, but also terrifying. This very kind of vertiginous feeling of, I could be anyone. Who the hell am I going to be? And not really stopping to interrogate why I didn't want to be myself. So that would bring up anxiety. That swimming would help enormously. I did swim. I did, I did, I did sometimes wear my swimsuit underneath my clothes, just so I knew I had it on. In case, I, in case I could go for a swim. And there was a party that I went to in Hollywood when I first got there. And, you know, they had, like, they had the tea lights in the pool and water lilies. And like, it was, they made their swimming pool purely ornamental for the purposes of their fancy party. And I was just like... <laughs> and the, the hostess called my agent and she was like it's really very strange like I do we don't understand like she went for a swim and my agent who was Irish was like well I mean was she swimming in the pool or was she swimming in like the ornamental lake and they, they were like no I mean she was swimming in the pool and my agent was like well there you go I mean it's fine you know <laughs> this what's I don't understand the problem um, which was really funny but yeah I had to rein that in a bit um I love, I really love swimming. Swimming gets you through grief and heartbreak, I've found. Hi. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, choosing to be a mother and uh, being in the creative arts and what that meant or what that evolution was to being a creative person and then becoming a mother and then what does that look like for you? It's you know, it's the greatest thing I ever did. Like, having my son was the greatest thing I ever did, for sure. Uh, it was also incredibly hard. You really understand why there are... You know, a partnership is a useful thing when you need to hand a baby over to someone else. But it was also... It was so clear to me that that was the right thing to do. And the notion of it either derailing my career or not being able to afford it, which were certainly thoughts that I had, they kind of, they were thoughts that couldn't really take root. They, they just, they were so kind of eminently subordinate to the idea of Henry and, and him and, and being a mother that I knew that I'd figure it out. I really didn't know how, I really didn't have a plan and it was frightening. But I do, I really do believe that babies bring their own luck and... Yeah, I think it was one of those things of just, of just doing it and not knowing what it was going to look like, but trusting that it would somehow be okay. And I've, you know, I'm not scared of working really hard. And I did work really hard to make it work. Yeah. Hi, we have one um, <coughs> question from the live stream. Um, they said that you've spoken about the terrible audition process and how sexism still pervades in the industry and they're wondering you know, does cinema and acting and film still excite you? Do you still love it? Or is it so plagued by misogyny that there's a part of you that you, you don't love it anymore? Oh no, God no, I love it. I love the misogyny. <laughs> <laughs> misogyny is why I get out of bed in the morning. Oh, I mean... <laughs> You get very used to you get very used to accommodating the hard things in any job, right? Like there's nothing it, it is grim. There has been there has been a reckoning. There are now there are now things in place that really do protect particularly young women from the kind of predatory behaviour that we all would kind of witness being exposed. But it's a it's a pretty glacial pace, it it, it changing just in terms of I think women's voices not getting a bit of an eye roll quicker than a, a man's voice you know I think there's a ways to go but um, I have great hope that that will that will happen bye <laughs> <laughs> do you do you think I would just add to that I mean do you think it's because one also hopes that there are more there are more films being made by women I think so definitely women and I I do think that it's coming you know it's now becoming someone just said the other day because I produce a bit as well and they were like you know 
have you got any female directors? And I was like, don't you mean anyone good? And they were like, no, just, they just need to be a woman. And I was like, okay, well, is it bad that it's being shoehorned in? Or is it just opportunity? And I think maybe, you know, I think you have to just take the opportunity because the more female filmmakers there are, the more female narratives. But we have to create programs that, you know, women can shadow directors, they can learn. We need to create institutions that actually teach people, not just women, but minorities that haven't had the same opportunities, the same privilege. So it's really about creating shadowing programs and um, grants and, you know, paid work, paid internships for, for people of colour and for women. Um, I think the more that happens, the quicker the whole thing becomes balanced. Who else? Over here? Hi, I read that you said um, you regretted changing your agent when you went to America. And I just wondered what you thought your career would have been. Like if you'd stayed with your original agent, is there something that you think, oh, I would have you know, been the top theatre actor or I would have just had completely different roles? What, what was the big regret? Well, there was, there, was two, there was two agents that I left. There was the British agent, and then there was this wonderful Irish agent in America. And she's one of the, the great sort of legendary agents now. Like, she was kind of coming up then when, when, I, when she signed me. You know, it's pretty dangerous going down the road of what-ifs. Like, I, I have done it, and I found it to be... It's not in the realm of self-care to do that. Because it would have been really different. But you've got you to gotta make heavy mistakes sometimes. I mean, yeah, I probably would have had a, a different career. She would have encouraged me to do a lot of different things and I think created opportunities. They both would. But I know the reasons why, why I left. I know what kind of uh, mental state I was in when I made those decisions. And, you know, I'm... I understand that girl who did that. And it's okay. Like, I mean, there are days where I wonder, but it's, it's okay. Only one person left this. I'm doing, I'm doing really well. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. First, I just want to acknowledge the um, orgasm chocolate game thing because it must have taken a huge amount of strength to do that there. And there was a question, so I mean, not a quick question. Oh, you know, thank you. I relate to that, which you touched on as well, about misogyny, which is you commented that it's, it's definitely better, but it's got a long way to go. What do you think can actually be done? I know you've again touched on you know, young women being protected now from your view. I really, I really do think that it's, as with most things, it's education. I really do. It's training. It's, it's giving opportunity to people. Like, I, 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 I lost a job because it was, I, was, I was let go for, to make way for a person of colour to take that job. This was completely righteous, and it was right. What was bothering was that the corporation was not necessarily creating pathways within the executive branch for, for people to rise up within that company as a whole. So it felt performative. So I think the more that we really integrate the way in which systemic change can happen, which is by creating pathways of education, teach someone. Don't just hire a woman to have a female filmmaker because that's going to tick that box. Teach that woman how to be a great filmmaker. Give her the job because she's the best person for it. I mean, it's, it's really... There's, there's an awful lot of shoehorning that is happening right now, which I think is maybe not, it's not as damaging, but it doesn't, solve, it doesn't solve the problem. But I do think that sharing your knowledge, like sharing, teaching people, um, mentoring, I think those are really important, really important um, acts of advocacy 
And that, I think that's how it changes. I think it's, I would say, also, I think it's true in all the creative arts that there has to be change sort of going very far back. People need to see from when they're very young yeah. that this could be a possibility for them, not just like, as you say, sort of performatively at the, at the end of the process, let's bring in someone now. You need someone who's right now seven starting to go to films and say, I'm going to be a director. But there's a kind of cultural triage that is happening, which is like, I think, trying to make up for just so much wrongdoing in so many areas and so much privilege and lack of access. So there's there's quite a lot of um, performative stuff that is happening while deep systemic change is happening, but it just takes longer um, I think it is probably going to be generational. I mean, I think there's things that we can do, but it is, you know, I look at my son, who's 13, and his class, like, they are, the way that they, the way that they are, they are inclusion, like, they don't think of it differently, they don't, they don't look at things through the same prism. They, all these kids from all these different socioeconomic backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, they they're managing their own expectations like in a different, in a very different way. Because mm. I think they feel that the, the playing field for them is maybe a bit more level. Hi, Mickey. Um, what has been the biggest challenge that you've made um, since, well, since you got into that? Uh, What's been the most challenging thing? Hmm. I think carrying on getting employed so I can pay my mortgage. <laughs> Like, seriously, you really do keep thinking that every single job is the last job. Like, the last job is always the last job. So the challenge is really in your brain. The challenge is to stay, is to stay sane and not believe the schism and the gap and to maybe just recognise it and to not be tortured by it. That I found it really challenging to kind of keep a, a level head whilst wanting people to like me. <laughs> Well, I really would, I would very much like to do Barnaby. Shall we do a play? <laughs> this is a great friend of mine who is a producer. I mean, I'm, I'm, always, I'm always available. I mean, I really am. I just, it's the weirdest thing. I don't ever really get off at plays, and I don't know why. And it was that way when I, when I first started working. I kept trying to get jobs in the theatre because it's all I wanted to do, and I kept getting television um, and then films. And so it turns out that I've really only done one professional, no, two professional plays, one at the Almeida, this play Chatsky in like 1992 or one, and then Sexual Perversity in Chicago in 2004. Yeah, I'll do a play. <laughs> what do you got? <laughs> <laughs> I think there's someone over here. Oh, is that lady over there? It's anachronistic, that's, that's for sure. Um, I think, and perhaps that was, maybe that wasn't the best example, because it seems, it seems a bit cruel. No, but you're, but you're, no, 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 but you're right. Today, I think, I think seeing someone as a whole person and being realistic about, you know, all our children are not delicate little perfect flowers. Like, they are sometimes, and they are also awful. And... Teachers know that. <laughs> Teachers really know that. And they, 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 he was, I think he was being funny also because he'd written so copiously about me in so many other ways to my parents and about me that this report card was really just, 
him being funny, but we, there are just different mores today, you know, around, around kids and around the way we speak to them. And maybe it's, maybe it's good that we're a bit, more, a bit more careful, but it can be restrictive when it's too careful. I have a slightly more lighthearted question, but as a consumer of the arts, which is your favourite, like theatre, movies, TV? Oh, that's like trying to choose, like, which is your favourite kid. I mean, <laughs> I've only got one, like, I can't... Uh, I really do love all of them. I really do. I really do love making films. No, here's the thing. I love doing... I love playing characters that are great. And a great TV show offers you the opportunity to kind of stay with that character. But a film is also the distillation of all of that, all of that, the, the length of time that it takes over a TV series to kind of create this thing. A film kind of distills it, and there's something beautiful about that and disciplined that I love. So, and music is just you, there's nothing between you and the expression of your soul. I mean, I, it's really difficult to choose. Um, you can't make me. <laughs> how, in, how important is your, I would say, identity as a musician? I mean, it's, it's very much, it seems to me, a, a part it's of you. Huge, Does it inform yeah. other parts? You know, it seems to me, my son is a musician, as I was saying, and it seems to me something that really is everything that you are. Yeah, I mean, God, I'm trying to remember who it was, but somebody really, oh, I know who it was, Mark Rylance on this podcast the other day. He said, you don't have to get professionally paid to do everything that you love. And I really, and it's, so, it's funny when you're a creative person, you think, oh, well, if I'm not writing songs all the time and putting out albums and like, being really successful and in the top 20, then it's not worth doing. But it's such a, it's so not true. Like, I play my guitar all the time. I'm constantly writing music. I'll probably write another record. I mean, I will. I just don't know when. But it's, part of the, it's all part of the process. It's all part of the, um, that crucible. If you're an artist, I mean, it sounds a bit lofty, but like, if you're an artist and not a scientist, I can't speak to scientists, but you throw stuff in that crucible and out comes the stuff that you put out into the world. Regard, you know, some people like it and some people don't, but for me, it's, it's totally mixed mediums. It's always doing everything. And there's... There's a lot of resistance to that. The people aren't, don't really seem to be for the Renaissance idea of people doing more than one thing. It's like, yo, I can write a play and play my lute. But <laughs> it's, you, you just keep making stuff. I'm not, I won't stop. I mean, you, I think you offer it up. You offer it up and you see what connects with people. Because if, if you tell stories for a living, then that's your job. You tell stories, you know. However you do. Oh, I don't know. I mean, people are getting thumped for their comedy, that's for sure. <laughs> I mean, I think we're into a really strange and interesting time of self-expression where there is, like, real-time punishment for stuff that people don't like. And sticking your head above the parapet with an opinion about anything these days feels incredibly dangerous. It does feel a bit scary. And... You know, I'm not, I'm not a comedian, and I, I'm really aware of the topics that it is probably dangerous territory to, to stray into. There doesn't seem to be a huge amount of forgiveness. I'm very anti the notion of cancelling a person, because how can you... That literally goes against the whole fundament of evolution. And while it's not that people don't transgress, they do. They do terrible things but for there never to be an opportunity to change or to improve. Maybe not to be accepted and loved again, but at least so that the, you know, there, is, there is the opportunity to change. I think without that, there's no hope. And without hope, there's just bleakness. And that's dire. So, did that answer your question? <laughs> Did, sorry, say that again? 
I don't know. I'm trying to think. I'm like going back over my CV in my head. It's like a weird Rolodex. Um, I don't think so. I mean, no, I don't think mm. so. Maybe I'll think of it in the middle of the night and be like, <laughs> oh, I should have said. We have time for one more, I think, before Mini Signs books down in front here. Uh, I found your um, reference to the Truman Show scene where we get to, to the end of the world with the staircase to nowhere, quite really relatable. Um, obviously, to get through that, it takes a lot of characters. So I wanted to ask you, what was one of your favourite characters that you've played in a film? Ah. I really liked. Uh, I really liked this character I played in this TV show called The Riches. Um, I think it probably because it was as far away from who I am as any character I've ever played. She was a southern junkie traveller, and it was it was a really amazing. It was a really amazing part, and playing opposite Eddie Izzard was amazing too. So I enjoyed that. I enjoyed being that person because I w- I wouldn't normally get cast. I don't normally get cast as a slightly toothless southern meth head. More's the pity. <laughs> but, yeah, I loved her. I, I, I will always love her. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Minnie Driver, for a wonderful evening. As I said, Minnie is going to be signing copies of her amazing book afterwards. Um, but please join me in thanking her. Thanks so much. Thank you. This episode of the How To Academy podcast starred Minnie Driver and was presented by Erica Wagner. The producers were Esme Bright and Dana Outcult, and Dana is also an executive producer of the series, along with me, Vas Christodoulou. If you enjoyed the show as ever, please do rate, review and subscribe on Apple, Spotify or wherever you listen. We'll be back with more next Tuesday. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>